Your Instagram account will not save you from today's passage. So whatever social media account that you use, Twitter, Facebook, Snapchat, Instagram, whatever, none of them can save you from today's passage. You can't slap enough filters on this passage in Mark to hide your sin. You can't position the camera just right and avoid the background of your life being exposed. Mark comes out swinging in this section today. In fact, I will argue in a moment that he gets real in this passage. Mark is going to get real on his Instagram. He will literally expose his heart in our passage today. So Mark will tell it just like it is, just like it was that night in the garden when Jesus was arrested. No hashtags, no filters, no clothes. But we don't like that, do we? We don't want people to peer behind the curtains of our lives. We like to draw the shades on our hearts. We will only let people into our lives when we're comfortable with how things look. We say that we want to be real, but do we really? Jared Wilson addresses this in his book, The Imperfect Disciple. He says this, And we aren't any more real. Even in our transparency, our authenticity is a posture. We show what we want to show. I think, for instance, of the social platform Instagram. Apparently, everybody lives in a golden field, in a renovated farmhouse, whitewashed with organic paint and decorated with bowls of ripe fruit positioned just so. The children all wear adorable galoshes, the men in flannel, the women paisley sundresses they have made themselves from fabric bought down at the old mercantile in town. When they're not taking pictures of their permanently vintage filter family, hashtag blessed, they are posting inspirational quote graphics. The whole thing is brilliant and lovely and heartwarming and cute as a button. It's also fakey, fake, fake. It's a ruse. 98% of family life is simply not ready for Instagram. Is it any wonder why so many of us struggle With church community? Because it doesn't seem Instagram worthy. Like ever. You put a bunch of people together who aren't even blood related and expect them to be as utterly devoted to each other as blood relatives ought to be. You ask them to open up to each other. To share with each other the reality beneath the social media shams we're all so busy perpetrating. Well, Mark's going to blow the lid off this whole thing. So turn in your Bibles to Mark chapter 14. Mark is going to show us that most of our lives as disciples are not ready for Instagram. Mark will show us the contrast between the faltering and fleeing and faithless and fickle disciples and Jesus. And what a contrast there is. Mark will show us that the revolution will not be Instagrammed. The kingdom of God will not be Instagrammed. The kingdom of God will not be advanced through hashtags and filters and tweets and posts and hearts. Now, God can use those things and he does use them, so don't stop using social media. But primarily, 
Jesus advances his kingdom through very ordinary, messed up people who do very ordinary things like read their Bibles and pray and serve others and share the hope of the gospel and share the messy parts of their lives. And Mark is going to share one of the messy parts of the disciples' lives in our passage today. It will get real messy real fast. Peter is going to go all Vincent Van Gogh on somebody's ear and chop it off. And every single disciple who swore up and down to Jesus just a few hours ago that they would never, ever, ever desert Jesus, well, guess what? They do exactly what they said they would not do. They all desert him and run away like cowards. And Mark is going to tell us something about himself, too. And it kind of goes like this. Hello, my name is Mark. I'm a disciple of Jesus, and I'm a coward. I got so scared once, and I deserted my Lord when they arrested him. And I was so scared, it just didn't scare my socks off. It scared all my clothes off. Hashtag running naked. Mark is so intent on saving his own skin in our passage today that he runs away just wearing his skin. Mark will tell us about a time when he was a coward. He'll share a messy part of his walk with Jesus. And if we're honest, we're just like the disciples. We have messy parts of our lives that we do not want put on Instagram. But the good news of the gospel is that Jesus loves messy people, even cowards. And so here's the takeaway from this passage, and it's what we need more of in this church. Gospel plus safety plus time. Ray Ortland said, this is what our churches must be. Gentle environments of gospel plus safety plus time. It's where we're finally free to grow. And that's what we're aiming for here at Grace. We want Grace to be a safe place for disciples who feel like failures. For parents who feel like failures. Any parents like that out there? We want to be a place where, where people who feel like failures come and they know it's safe, where they hear good news and where they aren't rushed into anything, no rush to get your act together, no pressure, not even some kind of self-imposed pressure or deadlines on growth. Urgency? Yes. Do we hate sin? Yes. Do we fight sin? Of course. Is there some sense of urgency? Yes. But not hurry because no one changes quickly, right? Who changes quickly? Who still struggles with the same old lurking sins? All of us. Change is slow and growth takes time. And what kind of environment do disciples grow best in? One that is safe and one where the gospel is like glitter, and it's just gotten all over the place. That's what we're shooting for here at Grace, that the gospel would be like glitter and just be everywhere. It's like, it's just all over the place. You can't get rid of it. When we totally blow it like the disciples in our passage today, 
What we need is a safe place to hear the gospel again and again and again. Not shame, not guilt. We need the gospel. And that's what the disciples needed after an epic night of failure. So look in your Bibles at Mark chapter 14, beginning in verse 43, and hear the word of the Lord. And immediately while Jesus was still speaking, Judas came, one of the twelve, and with him a crowd with swords and clubs from the chief priests and the scribes and the elders. Now the betrayer had given them a sign saying, the one I will kiss is the man. Seize him and lead him away under guard. And when he came, he went up to Jesus at once and said, Rabbi, and he kissed him. And they laid hands on Jesus and seized him. But one of those who stood by drew his sword and struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. And Jesus said to them, Have you come out as against a robber with swords and clubs to capture me? Day after day I was with you in the temple teaching, and you did not seize me. But let the scriptures be fulfilled. And they all left him and fled. Now keep in mind what we saw Two weeks ago, it's happening just before this. Jesus had been experiencing unbounded torment of soul as he was coming face to face with the reality of what he would endure on the cross. Jesus was seeing that he would be on the receiving end of the wrath of God on the cross for our sins. Jesus would endure the scariest, the most hideous frightening, alarming, terrifying, petrifying, hair-raising, spine-tingling, blood-curdling, bone-chilling, horrifying, nerve-wracking, fearsome, unnerving, and eerie thing that any human being could experience. And just as he's coming up for air, if you will, here comes Judas, one of the twelve disciples, one of his friends who would betray him with a kiss. Judas informed the mob that the man they were looking for would be the one that he embraced with a kiss on the cheek, which was a very customary greeting back then. Judas pretends to be intimate with Jesus. We're friends, he's saying. We care for one another. We're family. And yet he betrays him. Judas comes grinning from ear to ear, acting as if he genuinely loves Jesus. But he's faking because what he is actually doing is selling out his friend. But why do the crowd, why does the crowd come with swords and clubs to arrest Jesus? Jesus Jesus even asked them this question. Jesus wants to know why they came with weapons because they had seen him teaching in the temple. They knew that he wasn't packing heat and yet they come with swords and clubs. Why? The answer is, is that they seemed to be expecting some kind of armed resistance. Peter has a sword handy, so I assume that Judas saw it earlier that evening when Jesus celebrated the Passover with the disciples. So Judas knows that Peter's got a sword. He carries a sword with him, and he knows what Peter's like. In fact, Jesus asked them why they come after him like they would a robber. The word that Jesus uses is not so much, he's not so much saying, why are you coming after me like I'm a thief? The word that the ESV translates here as robber is the word that was was used of a person who would lead an insurrection, a person that would gather people to lead a rebellion against a government. 
And so Judas probably expects some kind of armed resistance here. He expected Peter to pull out his sword, which Peter did. In verse 47, Mark tells us that one of the disciples pulled out a sword and cut off the ear of one of the guys who was trying to arrest Jesus. All four of the Gospels include this story, but John is the only one that tells us the names of the people involved, that it's Peter cutting off the ear of Malchus. Listen to John 18, verses 10 through 11. Then Simon Peter, having a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's servant and cut off his right ear. The servant's name was Malchus. So Jesus said to Peter, put your sword into its sheath. Shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given me? So when they tried to arrest Jesus, Peter pulls out his sword and he just starts swinging. And he cuts off the ear of a guy named Malchus. So Peter goes all Vincent Van Gogh on this guy. If you know the story of Vincent Van Gogh cutting off his own ear or part of it. Peter pulls a Mike Tyson biting on Evander Holyfield kind of move here. Keep in mind that Jesus has just experienced unbounded mental anguish as he comes to grips with the fact that he must drink the cup of God's wrath against our sin on the cross. And then suddenly, Judas, one of his friends, shows up and kisses him, just like a friend or a brother would do, and betrays him. And then Jesus has compassion on this man and heals his ear. So think about it. Jesus is overwhelmed by the cup of God's wrath that he has to drink. And then one of his best friends sells him out for a few dollars to a mob that's packing heat. And then a guy gets his ear cut off. And what does Jesus do? He heals the man, Malchus, who is holding a sword and part of the mob that came to get Jesus. What kind of God are we dealing with here? What kind of God are we dealing with? Not one that we would create. We are dealing with a God who sends his one and only beloved son to die for his enemies. And not just die for, but then adopt these enemies into his family so that they too become one of his beloved children. How different God is is from us. Jesus is surrounded by people who want him dead, by one who has betrayed him for a few dollars, and by his disciples who are cowards and will run away in fear. And how does Jesus respond to Malchus's misplaced ear? He is moved with compassion. We're not like this, are we? When we are attacked and when we are maligned and when people slander us and and people gossip about us and say things about us and when people get under our skin and bother us, none of you deal with that, do you? When people get under our skin and they just bother us, we just can't stand to be around them. And when we don't see eye to eye with someone, our natural reaction is to defend ourselves, right? We go into self-preservation mode. We go into self-justification mode. We are the first person that we think of when we are attacked. We care first about us, our reputations, what others think of us, how we can defend ourselves, how we can justify ourselves. And what does Jesus do? He is moved with compassion. 
He heals the ear of a man carrying a sword who came to arrest him. In the middle of being arrested, as he is surrounded by people who are waving swords and clubs at him, Jesus is moved with compassion and heals a man's ear. There's a sword at the throat of Jesus, and he extends a healing hand to a guy who's missing an ear. Now, I wonder, as I read the Bible, did Jesus pick the ear up and stick it back on and make it well? Did he kind of use the force and zap it back up there? I don't know. It's one of these questions I want to know. How did you do it, Jesus? But what I do know is that Malchus got his ear back. Jesus put his ear back on, and it looked as if it had never been removed. Malchus, though he came to arrest and seize Jesus, experienced the compassion of the kingdom of God. And the irony is that the name Malchus means king. So the king gets his ear cut off, and then the real king heals him and puts it back on. That's just how it is in the kingdom of God. The real king has compassion on his enemies, even when they come to seize and arrest him and lose their ear in the process. What kind of God and what kind of king are we dealing with here? A kind one. A kind king who is not like us at all. But Judas and the religious leaders don't know that Jesus' kingdom, this king, his kingdom is not of this world. Yes, Jesus is leading a revolution, but not in the way that people expected. Judas and company came with weapons because they thought Jesus was leading a revolution, but they didn't understand that Jesus came to lead a revolution, but not in the way that they expected, and not even in the way that the disciples expected. Peter thought that advancing the kingdom happened one ear at a time. But that's not how the kingdom comes. Jesus leads a revolution, but not the way everyone in the garden that night expected. In Jesus' kingdom, he puts others first. He loves and serves and gives himself for his enemies. And not just that, he takes his enemies, he forgives their sins, he gives them his righteousness. His perfect life so that they're reconciled with God and he adopts them into his family. Jesus was condemned so that you and I could come close to God and not be obliterated and wiped out. That we could approach God so that we could be his children. His kingdom will not be Instagram. God's kingdom comes through the death of Jesus for messed up people like us, for people who betray him, for people who are cowards, for people whose first reaction is violence, even for people who run away naked. Look at verse 51. And a young man followed him with nothing but a linen cloth about his body, and they seized him, but he left the linen cloth and ran away naked. Many scholars think that this is Mark, and I think so too. I think Mark was the young man who ran away naked. And people knew this. 
They went to grab Mark. He was so scared and wanted to escape so bad, so fearful that his clothes ripped off of him when they grabbed him, and then he just kept on running. So why does Mark include this embarrassing story? I think for at least two reasons. First, Mark wants his audience to know that he is not perfect. He is the guy they had all heard about who was so scared that he ran away naked. You're the guy. We heard about you. We heard about that guy. Mark is the coward responsible for this hashtag, hashtag running naked. Second, I think Mark added this personal story of his cowardice to remind all of us that we too are messy, we are cowards, and we aren't as faithful as we claim to be. We're not as faithful as our Instagram post claims to be, that we're just as fickle as the disciples. And why? Why are we so messy? Why are we so fickle in our devotion to the Lord? Because our first parents and their sin. We sin because we are sinners. And we are sinners because Adam sinned. And where did Adam sin? In a garden. And where is this whole scene taking place in Mark 14? In a garden. In the Garden of Gethsemane. And Mark expects us to make that connection, that garden connection. In the Garden of Eden, Eden, Adam and Eve fell miserably. And they were afraid. And they were exposed. And they were naked. And their eyes were open to their nakedness. And they were afraid. And they felt shame. And they ran and hid from God in a garden. So you have all these people in a garden. And they're all failing miserably. Adam and Eve. Judas. The disciples, Mark, and then there's Jesus in the garden, staring down the soldiers and absolutely unafraid, and he's staring down the contents of the cup that he must drink, the wrath of God. And as all the disciples flee, Jesus is left alone with the mob. Clubs are raised, swords are drawn. And Mark wants us to make another connection too. Adam and Eve were expelled from the Garden of Eden and they looked back and saw an angel with what? A flaming sword. Listen to Genesis 3.24. He drove out the man and at the east of the Garden of Eden he placed a cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. The flaming sword would keep Adam and Eve from ever returning to the garden. Their sin and their rebellion got them expelled and kept them from returning to God. And so the sword of justice was held by the angel who would not let them back in. And then there's Jesus surrounded by swords in a garden. But it's not the swords and clubs of these men that cause him unbounded torment of soul. There is another sword that Jesus will undergo. It's the sword of God's justice that kept Adam and Eve from ever returning to the garden. And that sword would fall on Jesus on the cross so that we could return to God. And so understand this. There is no way any human being can ever return to God and be reconciled to God, be made right with God, unless Jesus undergoes the sword of justice on the cross for us. 
if he is never cut off on the cross, we can never be grafted into God's family. But thank God, Jesus didn't run that night. Thank God he stood there and faced his enemies and yielded to the Father's plan to save cowards like us. We can't save ourselves no matter how hard we try. You can't Instagram your way out of Adam's sin. You can't Instagram your way out from under the crushing demands of God's law. God's law says to every one of us, be perfect, be without sin. You can't Instagram your way out of that. No filter, no hashtag can save you. Only the man standing in the garden surrounded by swords and clubs. On the cross, Jesus gets what we deserve so that we can get what he deserves. It's incredible. And it's good news for cowards. Good news for fickle, faithless friends. Jesus was cut off with the sword of God's justice for us. Beaten, bruised, bloody, nailed to a cross. Naked. Public shame. And then there's Mark. Mark is so intent on saving his own skin that he runs away just wearing his skin. Mark runs away in nothing but his birthday suit. And so how did the disciples respond here in the garden? Judas betrays Jesus. Peter cuts off some guy's ear. And he becomes one of the leaders of the early church. Give us your resume, Peter. Let's see. Oh, you cut off a guy's ear? Tell me about that. Cuts off some guy's ear. All the disciples and Mark, the naked guy, all run away in fear. And then there's Jesus, faithful, unafraid, willingly giving up his life, ready to drink the cup. And when you run away from Jesus and you're fickle like these disciples and you keep failing, you need a gentle environment. You need gospel plus safety plus time. You need the gospel. You need the good news. You need a a safe place to confess your struggles. And you need time. But most churches are not this way, are they? Most churches are not gentle environments of gospel and safety and time. They're just not that way, are they? Jared Wilson says, I know the church can be very difficult to get into, and yet as difficult and complex as messy discipleship is, it's incredibly easy to reproduce. Crummy discipleship is eminently replicable. Wherever people have to hear each other, see each other, and deal with each other in the context of God's glorious gospel, things will get messy. The good news is that messy is easy to replicate. So none of us is far from real discipleship. We don't have to be experts, just converts pointing each other to Jesus. Finding the rhythm of community is frustrating sometimes. Some churches even forego it altogether and settle for some kind of experience they imagine to be a suitable replacement. Spirit becomes spectacle. A lot of energy goes into making the church as slick and glossy as we can. We spend a lot of money and commit a lot of gifts and talents and resources to making sure we don't have to see what grace might do with the lights on. The real church isn't 
Instagrammable. But you can't dismiss it with a swipe. It endures forever. It may not look like much, but it's hell-proof. You know what? The Bible is the church's Instagram. It doesn't matter what filter you put on it. It ain't going to help, is it? What you see is what you get with God's people. And he would have it no other way, really. What you see is what you get with God's people. And the writers of Scripture, inspired by the Holy Spirit, mind you, they didn't capture Instagram-worthy moments, did they? They took pictures of people's dirty kitchens. They didn't like clean one section off and say, I've got to put my plate right here and just get the clean area. No. They recorded stories of kids screaming at each other. They slapped this hashtag on every post and on every page of the Bible. Hashtag, we are seriously messed up. The Holy Spirit keeps it real in the Bible. He ain't hiding nothing. And how does the Bible begin? After you learn that God created this fantastic world that we live in, just by speaking the words of his mouth, you get Adam and Eve who choose a fruit over God. What they put in their mouths was better than the God who spoke that fruit into existence just by using his mouth. Adam and Eve have kids, and then one of them kills his brother, Then God wipes out the entire world except for Noah and his family. And then Noah gets drunk right after this. Right after Noah witnesses God wipe out all of humanity, everybody but eight people. Right after Noah witnesses God wipe out all of humanity except for his family, what does Noah do? He gets drunk. The only words we have of Noah that are recorded in the Bible smell like alcohol. When Noah finally speaks up in the story, his breath reeks of alcohol and he's got a hangover. I'm afraid some of you have too high a view of Noah. Maybe you've never noticed in the flood narrative that Noah never speaks. Noah doesn't say a word throughout the entire flood narrative. God does all the talking because it's all grace. In fact, the only time Noah does talk is after he gets drunk and goes to bed naked. So the only words that Noah speaks in the Bible, he speaks with whiskey on his breath, hungover and naked. And there goes your image of Noah. The only time Noah talks in the Bible is when he's hungover. His breath is still reeking of alcohol and he's lying in bed naked. We'll just stop with Noah because most of y'all have read the Bible and you know what a mess it is. The Bible is one big un-Instagram worthy mess. It's full of suicides. It's full of moral failures by spiritual leaders. It's full of rape. It's full of murder. It's full of lying and cheating and drinking and cussing sinners. And yet, this is how God chose to speak to us. This is how God chose to speak to us. Chad Bird said, when God was deliberating how best to unveil the profoundest mysteries of the world, he jettisoned philosophical treatises, systematic theologies, and Q&A catechisms. He chose and said to sit us children down on the front porch, light his pipe, and say, kids, let me tell you a story. 
a story full of naked people and talking snakes, polygamous kings and street smart prostitutes, giants and blind men and prophets smelling like they crawled out of a fish. God spoke this way to us so that we would long for someone who would come along and finally get it right. So we would long for someone to come who would love God with all of his heart, soul, mind, and strength. That's what's happening when Jesus is arrested and the disciples flee here in Mark 14. Jesus is the one that we were hoping for, longing for. He stands strong. He is the one who is unafraid. Jesus is the one who will finally get it right after page after page after page of mess. Jesus is the one who would really love God with all of his heart, soul, mind, and strength. So what's happening here in the garden is all a part of the story of God coming to rescue his children. It's all part of the adventure story about the young hero who came from a far country to win back his lost treasure. What's happening in this garden as soldiers come with torches and swords is part of the love story about the brave prince who left his palace, left his throne, left everything to rescue the ones he loves and to gather them in a family called the church where the context of God's glorious gospel is all over the place glitter. What might happen if we were disciples, if we were a church that got brave and dared be real with one another, dared to share the mess and the sin of our lives? What if we dared to take a chance and see what grace might do with the lights on? We might find ourselves being transformed. Isn't that what we want? That's the kind of culture we're trying to create here at Grace. We want to see what grace, God's grace, might do with the lights on. I've said this numerous times that Ray Ortland says that gospel doctrine creates gospel culture. Gospel doctrine on paper, what we believe shared with one another, creates this kind of gospel culture where the gospel gets everywhere like glitter. If we have no doctrine, no gospel, no good news, we'll be a weak church. We'll have a weak culture here. There'll be no gospel in the culture. People will not feel safe to confess their struggles. And if we don't have a gospel culture here, then our doctrine will be all personal. It'll just be head knowledge. We will, we will feed and, and, and get kicks out of becoming smarter and smarter, understanding more theology while having a cold heart. What we want to do is allow our belief in the gospel to create a culture that is a gospel culture. And I think by God's grace, he's been doing that over the last several years. Now, keep in mind that Peter discipled Mark. Peter told Mark about how he chopped off the ear of Malchus. Peter shared all of his failures that you read about in the gospel of Mark. Peter's the one that shared that with Mark. He's the one that said, write this stuff down. Don't forget that stuff. 
And then Mark records the story about him running away naked. Now, how do these guys feel so free to do this? How is Peter, how is Mark so free to share their struggles and how they've messed up? It's because they were in a gospel culture. They felt safe to tell others about how they failed and where they struggled. Gospel doctrine creates gospel culture. We don't want to just be a church that says preach the gospel to yourself. We want to do that, but we don't want to just be that. We want to preach the gospel to one another too. And that's what discipleship is. Discipleship is simply telling one another over and over and over again what Jesus has done for us through his life, death, and resurrection. Let me repeat that. Discipleship is simply telling one another over and over and over again what Jesus has done for messy people like us through his life, death, and resurrection. It's about connecting what we know about Jesus to one another. So we want to take the doctrine that we believe and move it from the paper that it's printed on and write it on one another's hearts. We want to preach the gospel to one another in a community, in a family, where shame is not allowed. I mean, there's no guilt trips here. No, get your act together, got to give more, got to serve more, none of that. We want to preach the gospel to one another in a community, in a family where shame is not allowed, no guilt trips, no shame. No, how could you? But instead, a whole lot of how could he? How could Jesus be so good to us? Because we just keep messing up. We want to be a safe place where sinners can come and share their burdens and share their struggles and share their sins and not be shamed or guilted. A church that's not in a hurry. A place where these three things feel normal. Gospel, safety, time. We want to be a church where the gospel is shared from the pulpit and in our small groups and in our Sunday school classes in all of our ministries. We want grace to be a gentle environment of gospel plus safety plus time. We want to be the place that you come to when you've failed, when you've totally blown it in your life, and you say, that's the place I gotta go. I feel safe there. I feel loved. I hope you feel safe to confess your sins here, to confess your struggles, to confess your marriage problems, confess your parenting struggles. Because parents, we're all struggling, are we not? Let's talk about it. It's strangely encouraging to hear that somebody else really yelled at their kids, isn't it? You you yelled at your kids too? That's awesome. It encourages me. Because I yell at mine too. I did last night. A place where you can confess that I had an opportunity to share the gospel with someone, but I was too scared and I didn't place to confess how you struggle with fear and anxiety and depression and pride and lust and worry. We want grace to be a safe place like Mark does here in verses 51 to 52 where he openly shares his failures. Whatever ministry you are involved in here at Grace, ask yourself in your ministry, have you created a gentle environment of gospel plus safety plus time? In your classes, in your ministries, in your small groups, in your meetings, even in your meetings. Are we helping 
to create and cultivate a gentle environment of gospel plus safety plus time even in our meetings? Are we showing grace to others? Do people feel safe around us to fail and mess up? We want this church to be a safe place where you can come and say, tell me the gospel story again. I blew it this week and I need to hear good news again. A place where we encourage each other with this good news. Gospel culture. That's what we're aiming for every week. Where people feel safe to share their struggles and concerns. A place, a church, a family that is not afraid to be real. And when you get real with the real Jesus and you turn the lights on, His grace shows up and it begins changing you. Slowly, yes, but grace will begin to transform you. So question. Will you dare turn the lights on in your life to see what God's grace might do? Or will you just hide behind filters and hashtags? Listen, Jesus loves sinners, messy sinners, broken sinners, all kinds, and he died for them. And that's a story that's worth repeating often in community with one another. And it's a story that's worth posting on Instagram. And it's a story that's worth sharing with your neighbors and your coworkers. And it's a story that's worth believing for the first time this morning or believing once again for the thousandth time. Let's pray. Father, thank you for how merciful and kind you are to people like us. You would send your son to die for sinners like us. Thank you for those who have turned from their sins and mess and brokenness and rebellion and are trusting in Jesus. Thank you that now we're your children. And as I read in Colossians 1.22 this morning, Lord, we are free from accusation. There could be no accusation brought against us because we are covered and have been imputed with the righteousness of your Son. And we thank you. What kind of God are we dealing with? Oh, you're not like us at all. And we give you praise. And we give you glory. And we worship you this morning for the cross of your Son. We thank you for his life, death, resurrection, and soon return. In his name we pray, amen.